The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 9, Chapters 4 through 6. In the security of her sanctuary, Esmeralda regains hope, and the terrible images which had so long possessed her fade gradually away. And besides, Phoebus was alive. Despite all the blows it had suffered, this blind and unreasonable love continued to flourish. She reflects bitterly that Phoebus should never have believed she, who would have given her life for him, could have stabbed him. But she blames herself. After all, she succumbed to torture and confessed. She feels certain that if only she could see Phoebus once more, she could bring him back. Any details to the contrary, like the young girl she saw by his side in the square, she evades. She needs to believe that he loves her. The church itself, with its sounds of majesty and blessing, acts as a sovereign balm that soothes her sick soul. The chanting of the priests, the blast of the trumpets, and especially the ringing of the bells, lull her memory and her grief. As her wounds heal, her beauty blooms. Even some of her gaiety returns. She thinks of Quasimodo, the only friend chance had given her, and reproaches herself for not feeling sufficient gratitude to blind her eyes. But he was too ugly. He continues his doting attention, always sympathetic to and accommodating of her aversion. When he sees her lovingly fondle little Jolly, he expresses regret at being too much like a human and not more wholly animal. And later, speaking to one of the grotesque images carved into the wall, with whom he often exchanged fraternal glances, he says, Oh, why am I not of stone, like you? One morning, he finds Esmeralda on the edge of the roof overlooking the square, and as he stands behind her to spare her the annoyance of seeing him, sees her with eyes flashing joy and arms outstretched, and hears her cry like a shipwrecked mariner making signals of distress. Phoebus, one word, only one word for the love of heaven, Phoebus. Quasimodo heaves a deep sigh, clenches his fists, gnashes his teeth, and mutters, Damnation, so that is how one should look. And then, his eyes brimming with suppressed tears, he approaches her gently to ask, Shall I go and fetch him? Clasping his knees, she replies with wounding gratitude, Oh, go, go, I will love you. He turns away and hurries down the stairs, choking with sobs. Quasimodo crosses the square to the Gondolier house, where the inhabitants seem to be preparing for a wedding. He waits outside for the captain, while Esmeralda stands vigil at her post on the roof. Both pass the whole day like this. After dark, the windows of the Gondolier house remain lighted, and Quasimodo sees figures dancing, and hears the sounds of revelry and laughter. Suddenly, a glass door on the balcony opens, and two figures pass out. It is the captain, in the company of a young lady, who is making feeble resistance to a kiss. The scene fills Quasimodo with bitterness. 
because he is doomed always to look upon the happiness of others, and because Esmeralda, if she could see it, would suffer. A moment later, Phoebus's attentions to the girl are interrupted by the appearance of an old lady. He makes his way inside, and soon after emerges from the house, mounts his horse, and passes by Quasimodo. Quasimodo limps toward him, seizes his horse by the bridle, and tells him, "'Follow me, Captain. Here is someone who wishes to speak with you.' When the captain resists, he adds, "'It is a woman,' and then, "'A woman who loves you.' And when Phoebus remains unmoved, "'It is the gypsy girl, whom you know.' Phoebus, who believed the gypsy girl similar to have been hanged, responds with terror and places his hand on his dagger. He kicks Quasimodo away, spurs his horse, and disappears in the darkness. Quasimodo returns to Notre Dame, and when Esmeralda sees him alone, she is angry and reproachful. He bears her reproaches and says merely, I will watch better another time. From that day forward, she no longer sees him, but she continues to find her provisions renewed by an invisible hand. One morning, she wakes up to discover two vases of flowers on her windowsill. One, a beautiful but cracked crystal vase holding flowers that had withered, and the other, an earthen jug with flowers fresh and rosy. The metaphor is clear and so too is the one contained in Esmeralda's response. She takes the withered nosegay and wears it all day in her bosom. Thereafter, she ceases entirely to see or hear Quasimodo, but one night she hears a sound outside her cell and finds him there, sleeping on the stones. Meantime, Claude Frollo learns the story of Esmeralda's rescue, Weary of all the torments he had suffered, he knows not what to feel. Quote, the human heart can hold but a certain quantity of despair. When the sponge is thoroughly soaked, the sea may pass over it without adding another drop to it. Unquote. After hearing the news, he shuts himself up in seclusion in his cloister cell and remains thus for several weeks not even answering the knock of his adored brother, Jeanne. From his window, he sees the interactions between Esmeralda and Quasimodo, asks himself what reasons he could have had for saving her, and begins to feel a jealousy awakening within him such as he had never imagined possible. At night, Claude Frollo writhes upon his bed as images of Esmeralda stir his blood. Then, one night, his priestly blood cruelly heated, he leaps from his bed and leaves his cell, wild and haggard, with flaming eyes. Esmeralda, sleeping peacefully, awakens to a noise and sees a face peeping in at her window. It is the face of the priest. He glides to her side, clasps her in his arms, kisses her shoulders, and begs her for mercy. She strikes him with the impotent fury of a child, calling him a demon, while he pleads with her to have pity, to love him. He responds to her resistance with greater force, gnashing his teeth and saying, No more of this. In her struggle, 
she finds Quasimodo's whistle and blows it with her remaining strength. In a moment, Quasimodo is there, grasping Claude Frollo with a vigorous arm and holding a knife above his head. But he does not know that the man he holds is his master, and he cannot hear his cries of Quasimodo. Desiring to spare Esmeralda the sight of violence, Quasimodo drags the priest across the threshold, and there the pale rays of the moonlight fall across his face. The deaf man's attitude immediately transforms, and he bows his head to the priest in submission. But he says, My lord, do what you will afterwards, but kill me first, offering him the knife. Esmeralda tears the knife from his hands, utters a frenzied laugh, and dares the priest to touch her. Claude Frollo kicks Quasimodo to the ground and gropes his way back to his cell. There, he repeats the fatal words, No one else shall have her. The second of my posts was called Quasimodo was truly beautiful. When Quasimodo carries Esmeralda away from the gibbet, crying, Sanctuary, Hugo says that in that moment he was truly beautiful. He grows still more beautiful in the chapters that follow. There is beauty in his love for Esmeralda, a love sacred and reverential. We see its unfathomable depths in response to her song, which he cannot even hear. Quote, he remained on his knees, his hands clasped as if in prayer, attentive, scarcely breathing, his eyes riveted upon the gypsy's sparkling orbs. He seemed to read her song in her eyes. Unquote. There's beauty in his constant determination to suppress his own pain to serve what pleases her, even if it means delivering his own rival into her arms. Quote, the poor bell-ringer's eyes filled with tears, but he did not let a single one flow. All at once he plucked her gently by the hem of her sleeve. She turned. He had assumed a tranquil air, and said, Shall I go and fetch him? She uttered a cry of joy. Oh, go, go, run, quick, that captain, bring him to me. I will love you. Unquote. There is beauty in his pure commitment to her as his highest value, such that what causes him the most suffering is any thought that she might suffer. Quote, he reflected on the miserable part which Providence had assigned him, that woman, love, pleasure were forever to pass before him while he could never do more than look on the happiness of others. But what pained him the most in this sight what added indignation to his annoyance was the thought of what the gypsy must suffer, could she see it. Unquote. And in his willingness to endure unjust scorn if it means sparing her pain. Quote, Alone, she cried mournfully, clasping her lovely hands. I could not find him, said Quasimodo coldly. You should have waited all night, she replied indignantly. He saw her angry gesture and understood the reproach. I will watch better another time, said he, hanging his head. Go, said she. 
he left her. She was offended with him. He would rather be maltreated by her than distress her. Unquote. And in his willingness to risk his very life merely to spare her discomfort. Quote, Over her cell there was a piece of carving which alarmed her. She had more than once shown this feeling before Quasimodo. One morning, for all these things occurred at night, she no longer saw it. It was broken off. Anyone who had climbed up to it must have risked his life. Unquote. And then there is beauty even in his moment of torturous conflict of allegiances to the two people he loves most, the only two souls who have shown him kindness. He cannot take the life of a man who gave life to him, but neither will he stand witness to his crimes. Quote, the deaf man bowed his head, then knelt before the gypsy's door. My lord, said he, in grave, submissive tones. Do what you will afterwards, but kill me first. Unquote. The last of my posts was called Beyond Grief. There are violent reactions to grief, and then, when the heart is too overcome to suffer, there are muted ones. Quote, excess of grief, like excess of joy, is a violent thing, and of brief duration. The heart of man cannot long remain at any extreme. The gypsy had suffered so much that surprise was the only emotion of which she was now capable. Unquote. This line from our last reading reminded me of a story. A few years ago, my two eldest children and I traveled to London together, and by far the most moving of our experiences there was a visit to Keats' house in Hampstead Heath. We were familiar with his poetry, but we knew little about his story, and we were fortunate enough to be taken on a tour of the very home where Keats wrote many of his most renowned poems by a knowledgeable and passionate tour guide. Among other things, she told us the story of Keats and Fanny. Fanny was Keats's Hampstead neighbor. Upon meeting her, he was immediately fascinated, and before long, the two were hopelessly in love. But theirs was a star-crossed romance. Keats's financial situation made him an unsuitable match for Fanny. And worse, he would soon fall prey to the family disease tuberculosis. One night, he discovered a drop of blood on his sheets, and wrote, quote, I know the color of that blood. It is arterial blood. I cannot be deceived in that color. That drop of blood is my death warrant. I must die, unquote. He was 25 years old. My daughters and I heard that story as we stood in the room where that drop of blood was found. In his convalescence, Keats wrote to Fanny heart-wrenching love letters, and it was for her that he wrote the achingly beautiful poem Bright Star, in which he longs for immortality, so that he might remain for all time in that blissful moment denied to him altogether. Quote, Pillowed upon my fair love's ripening breast, to feel forever its soft fall and swell, awake forever, in a sweet unrest. Unquote. Lying on the couch of his Hampstead home, 
he experienced what must have been unbearable joy mixed with pain, as he would see Fanny pass by outside his window. We stood looking through that window, imagining his suffering. In a last, desperate, and futile effort at recovery, Keats left England for Italy in 1820. And this is where we learned a detail of their story that seems to me like the consummate example of muted grief. On the day Keats left, Fanny wrote in her diary only these words, Mr. Keats left Hampstead today. Our tour guide told us this detail with a stifled emotion of her own. She believed that Fanny's suffering had been so great that this benumbed response was all she could summon. <laughs> 